Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is session three of The Beauty of Holy Choices, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. In 2015, I wrote a book entitled The Beauty of Holy Choices, which examines people from the Bible who pleased God by making a hard choice in a difficult circumstance. Each of the 12 chapters is a standalone story, and they are all woven together by their emphasis on holiness, arranged in the order in which they appear in Scripture. Each unit ends with clear application to today's Christian walk and a challenge to the reader. This third installment is entitled, Joseph Shows Self-Control. All scripture is taken from the New International Version or the King James. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had 13 children by four women, two wives who were sisters and two concubines, the two sisters' maids. Twelve of the kids were boys, and one boy in particular, Joseph, was Jacob's very favorite. Jacob, who was later renamed Israel by God, loved his son Joseph best for at least a couple of reasons. First, Joseph's mother was Jacob's beloved Rachel, the one he'd had to work 14 years for to get permission from her father to wed her. Jacob was a decent man, and he was good to the other wife and concubines, but they didn't really have his heart as Rachel did. The second reason why Jacob loved Joseph best was that his beloved Rachel had struggled with infertility for years and years after they married, and the tears and frustrations she felt as the rival women produced offspring became almost too much for her to bear. When God finally answered Jacob's prayer and Rachel became pregnant, Jacob was getting on in years. He had mellowed and relaxed and could enjoy his son perhaps more than when he was younger, busier with his flocks and herds, and more driven. Joseph liked being the favorite, and he wasn't above rubbing his brother's noses in it. They became especially jealous when their dad made Joseph a colorful coat, and when Joseph reported to them that he had had a dream about their someday bowing down to him. So when Joseph was sent out to the wilderness to check on his brothers as they grazed their livestock, They sold him as a slave to a caravan of people headed for Egypt. They then told their father that he'd been killed by wild animals. Joseph started his new life in Egypt as a slave. So come with me to Genesis 39, 1 to 23. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. 
So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And now, let's skip forward a little to Genesis chapter 41, verses 39 to 52. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zophonath Paaneah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. 
During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph was apparently in his late teens or early twenties when this temptation from Potiphar's wife came his way. The time in life when a man's sex drive and testosterone levels are typically higher than at any other age. Joseph was not married and he had no girlfriend. In fact, he had no prospect of a legitimate sex life at any time in his foreseeable future. For all he knew, save for the faith he had in his previous dream, he would always be someone's slave. On the other hand, Potiphar was a rich man who was used to having whatever his heart desired. It is unlikely that his wife was anything other than beautiful, veritable arm candy with maidservants to wait on her, dress her in the finest, coif her hair, and put on her makeup. It would be naive to believe that Joseph was put off by Potiphar's wife and not attracted to her. Why would Satan put a temptation in Joseph's way to trip him up and thwart God's plan for his people unless it was truly an enticing thing, difficult to resist? Joseph knew that Potiphar wasn't paying a lot of attention, and he knew when Potiphar wasn't around. Surely the thought of the pleasures of an affair with his boss's wife came to his mind again and again. No one will ever know, the tempter's voice must have whispered. You have to do what she says anyway. She's your boss. You can't control this. Just enjoy it. You'll probably always be a slave anyway. Imagine the extra perks that could come your way if you sleep with her. How is it possible to ever say no when faced with something so alluring? Does the Bible say anything at all about how to face temptation? Or does it mostly just say not to do certain things? Actually, the Bible does lay out two main strategies for facing temptation, and Joseph used both of them. They are tried and true, and these holy choices can work for you too, whether you feel the urge to overeat, cheat on your taxes, or simply be lazy and neglect your responsibilities. I like to call the strategies fight or flight. Remember the fight or flight syndrome from biology class? Whenever you're faced with some sort of threat, the body's adrenal organs release a hormone called adrenaline or epinephrine into the bloodstream. It prepares you to cope with the emergency either by one, staying and fighting, or two, running away if it is possible to do so. When Joseph was faced with Mrs. Potiphar's suggestions day after day, he stood his ground and fought. The Apostle Paul described such a battle well in his first letter to the Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. 
Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He uses the word fight in 1 Corinthians 9.26 and talks about the struggle to bring his own flesh into submission. In the same way, Joseph made up his mind. There were certain lines he wasn't going to cross and certain things he wasn't going to do, period. So when he had to, he stood his ground and fought the urge as though he were in a wrestling match. Sometimes when people fight, they use weapons. And in Paul's day, a formidable weapon of choice was the sword. A sharp one could pierce the belly of the enemy and destroy him in a minute. When Paul wrote his famous passage about the armor of God to the church in Ephesus, he was careful to describe a weapon God gives for use against our enemy, Satan. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's Ephesians 6, verses 10, 11, and 17. The Bible, or God's word, is the ultimate weapon in the defeat of temptation. Even though none of the Old Testament had yet been written in Joseph's day, God's expectations were passed down orally and were written within the hearts of people of conscience. Joseph knew what adultery was and that it was displeasing to the Lord, and he affirmed it when he said to Potiphar's wife, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So even without access to explicit instructions about how to fight this battle of temptation, Joseph sensed that he needed to voice the truth that adultery is against the sacred law of God. When he did so, he struck a blow for righteousness and won the battle, if not yet the war. Jesus used the word of God to fight the awful temptations that Satan brought his way after 40 days of fasting in the desert. All three times, recorded in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Jesus begins his retort to Satan by quoting God's law from the Torah, which was given to Moses. That word was powerful enough to defeat the temptation Jesus had to turn stones to bread when he was at the point of starvation. Don't you think that word can help you, too? Not every battle must be fought, though. Why engage if you can simply absent yourself from the difficulty? For example, if overeating is your weakness, wouldn't it be far better simply to make sure there are no junk foods in your house than to buy them and then try to fight the urge to open a bag of chips and eat the whole thing? Joseph's ultimate test came when Potiphar's wife got bold enough and desperate enough to actually lay her hands on him. Genesis 39, 12 says, And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. There was no talking himself out of this one. 
If Joseph had started another speech about how adultery is sinful, Mrs. Potiphar would probably have just ignored it and kissed him. No, this time, Joseph had to run like crazy, even if it meant leaving his coat behind in the hands of his boss's wife. You will have chances to get away from some of your biggest temptations, too. Always leave if you can. When tempting Christ, Satan saved the greatest test for last. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this will I give you, he said, if you will bow down to me and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus stood still and fought with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, as he had done before. But this time he had had enough. He effectively fled the situation by commanding the devil to get out. The words, Away from me, accomplished what running away would have if Christ's temptation had been dependent on a thing or a location in space. The way to get away from it all was to make Satan go, and he did. Paul echoes the running away strategy in his advice to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Paul says flee and adds a nice extra by telling Timothy to run toward something as well. Flee evil and pursue righteousness work awfully well together. But back to holiness. As giving in to temptation is sin, resisting temptation is a holy choice. Oh, the beauty of a character that refuses to do the wrong thing even when it is oh so appealing. How pleasing the personality of someone who has made up his mind to resist what he knows is sin. Will you fight and flee as needed? Will you study God's word and memorize it so that you have a ready weapon when the opportunity to sin is before you? If this has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. And the beauty of Holy Choices is available on Amazon.com.